Coming up, Riverside, big profits and small multifamily, Airbnb versus long-term rentals, seller blinders and small margins for error. Be sure to stay to the end of this one for a hot tip on the best charcuterie and wine bar in San Marco. But first, a tasty musical treat from one of Jacksonville's very own. Hello, Jacksonvillians. I'm your host, Ian Brown. This is the Jacksonville Commercial Real Estate Show. We bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, deal makers, and local thought leaders ready to dive in and unpack our Jacksonville commercial market so you can navigate with greater confidence and accelerate your own success. This show is lovingly produced by yours truly in Yield Coach Capital. Stay up to date and never miss an investment opportunity. Go to www.investwiththecoach.com, answer a couple of questions, and join the team. I am honored to be joined by Mr. Stephen McAdoo today. He is the Director of Multifamily Sales at Franklin Street. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ian. Happy to be here. Honored to be here. Awesome, awesome. I've got We've got a burning question for you. Can investors still make money in Jacksonville multifamily in this fourth quarter of 2023? Um, that's a great question. I... Absolutely think they can, but um, the game has definitely uh, changed in how how people are approaching deals right now in this market. Um, I think that you've got to be more aggressive now. The people that are on that list, if they you know they stay consistent, they stay looking for deals, keep making offers, keep giving feedback, um, then then those those investors are going to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. I think the days of just going to a weekend boot camp, getting an underwriting spreadsheet, putting out some clever social media posts, raising money, getting a loan, buying an apartment complex. I think those days are somewhat behind us. I think I saw a stat transaction volume, not prices, transaction volume is down almost 80%. And that could be a re- that could be a larger uh, geography. What I'm wondering is, you know, you're the director of multifamily investment sales over at Franklin Street, how are people adapting their underwriting? You know, here we are in the, as we record, we're in the, deep in the fourth quarter, 2023. Um, and you have a specialty, in my opinion, in, you know, these small to mid-sized multifamily deals. You you operate in good neighborhoods in Jacksonville. I've seen you obviously transact in your Riverside and San Marco and places like this. And are people in those smaller assets, you know, five to 50, definitely under a hundred units. Um, the changing market conditions, are they affecting those investors the same or is it more nuanced with your with your smaller to midsize multifamily investor? And then give, give that consideration of like a market like a Riverside or San Marco or maybe the beaches. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons I think, um, I mean, there's opportunities in both, ends of the market. But I think one interesting thing about um, the smaller uh, you know, deals in, in, in some of these markets like Riverside and San Marco is that you really have an array of owners buying and selling for uh, multiple different reasons in life. I mean, you have um, people that are purely profit driven, but you also have a lot of owners where it's just simply, um, you know, somebody in their family died and now they're, um, they're kind of, you know, shoring up their estate where I think at the larger 
uh, segment into the the market, you it's pretty much either profit driven or it's due to a loan maturity or a um, it's just the the end of the deal life cycle in terms of when the equity is supposed to be returned in 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 that sort of you know how things are going. So um, I feel like especially in markets like Riverside or San Marco, those deals tend to uh, really I don't know that they make a ton of financial sense. Um, as much as somebody is just dead set on owning in that particular market because they know that the demographics are great, that there's never going to be any new supply competing with them, you know, in Riverside or San Marco. I mean, granted, um, you know, pretty much you've got a pretty good barrier to entry because there's just, you know, nobody is, is going to uh, put new product up that's in direct, directly competing against, against your product. Um, so I think that that is, you know, there lies opportunity in that. Um, it's just, uh, you know, as the city gets built up, there will be, you know, uh, more and more 300 unit garden style institutional amenity rich properties. But there's the, you know, that those properties that are in uh, Riverside and San Marco are going to remain finite and people want to live in those people love those properties. And so um, I think that there's like an intrinsic value in those properties. That's, that's interesting. And like I said, they, they just get bought and sold for many different reasons in Riverside and San Marco, you can buy a deal where the numbers make sense um, even if they're not crazy, but the, the, you know, the numbers make sense for you um, and you hold it long enough at some point you will make a nice, uh, a nice spread um, because somebody is willing to pay, you know, more than maybe it's worth on just a strictly an income basis because there's some sort of um, there's some sort of emotional tie to those properties more so than than a lot of other areas of town. Um, so I think that is one thing that's very attractive about operating in those areas. I think another thing about you know I live in Riverside right now and. I see a lot of these two, three, four, some slightly larger, like maybe an eight unit, 12 unit, 22, 24, but smaller multifamily. No one's rebuilding these. So like you might get in at a price that is not a very attractive cap rate. You know, even, even if you run a five-year pro forma and you're like, wow, this, this thing, you know, it just barely debt covers. However, you look at the barrier to entry, uh, the cost to construct, you know, take like a brick quad in Riverside. Uh, between the land costs and construction costs for masonry construction, you'd have to do fire suppression now if you built it. So you look at these and you're like, yes, to your point, you take the long view. Now I can bring in somebody who might just want a house hack. So let's say it's you know at four unit, you have financing. There's actually some other financing that's emerging where you could house hack potentially something slightly bigger. But let's just for argument's sake, you buy a quad, someone could live in one, rent out the other, even if they're just going to live for free and self-manage uh, the three the three units, then you have some flexibility. You might say, well, at this price point, maybe you do go in cash. And maybe the cap rate is so low that it doesn't debt cover, but it's a reasonable return to somebody to just buy cash where you don't see that happening in like your 100, 200, three unit. I mean, you just, it would just be cost prohibitive. It'd be equity prohibitive to go in there all cash. The other thing that I notice is, you know, the, the potential to convert. So like these smaller properties, I'm in, a, I'm in a property, I'm sitting right now recording in a property that's zoned CRO, commercial residential office. A lot of Riverside is zoned CRO and uh, not all the multifamily, but a lot of it. So you look at a property that maybe, maybe down the road, it'll be an office. 
Maybe there'll be like a, a, a small, uh, there could be like a real estate company in there. There could be somebody living in there and having like a, I mean, a barber shop or I don't want to quote every use for CRO. But the other thing is you could run, you could run like a legal short-term rental um, as long as you comply. CRO, you can actually do um, hospitality properties as well. So you look at the the flexibility in, in Riverside and parts of San Marco for what it could be versus it really is just an Excel underwriting exercise to go do your 100, 200, three unit deal. Your stuff in, in these little bedroom communities is a little more nuanced. And like you said, your buyer profile, it may just be a, a higher income, higher net worth professional that wants to have something to, to diversify outside of their stock portfolio. And the other thing that comes to mind with these properties is because they're desirable and walkable. Jacksonville is a beautiful city. I love the city, but we only have a few like pedestrian friendly areas. Um, and, you know, Riverside, San Marco, Avondale, Murray Hill, parts of Springfield, beaches, you know, Ortega, parts of it. So you, there's not a ton of walkability throughout the, throughout the city. So let's say you want to do like a corporate rental, furnished rental, Airbnb, something in that furnished category. San Marco, Riverside, some of the other areas I mentioned are ripe for it. Somebody could take a plane, take an Uber to the unit, show up with a toothbrush and a suitcase and essentially treat it like a hospitality property. You just can't replicate that in like your larger one, two, 300 unit Southside apartment complexes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. You can look, you can go into these neighborhoods and, um, and just look at it and say, this is a great piece of real estate. One thing that sticks out to me that uh, the first um, in the first real estate real estate position I had protect the down, protect the downside and let the upside take care of itself. And I think that that is what a lot of these deals in the historic districts are. There may be something that happens in the future that allows you to cap you know capture this upside that's not readily apparent. And so um, I think that there's a lot of people that probably have stories about doing deals in in Riverside, San Marcos, Springfield, where that happened, where um, somebody just came along because and they were like, hey, I, I love this building and, and I want to buy it. And, you know, you're right. You probably see more cash deals, things like that. I would, I would, you know, venture to say that you're probably finding more people paying cash for a lot of these deals in those markets than you are in some of the, you know, other less desirable um, areas of the city. And you think about just to dwell on this Riverside multifamily topic a little longer. I mean, this is an area that you do have quite a few Airbnbs and maybe the audience doesn't know it, but Airbnb property management, I shouldn't just say Airbnb, short-term rental property management is quite expensive. Um, I'm not going to quote everybody's rates, but if you go out there, it's going to bracket 20%. Someone's probably going to quote you 25. Somebody might quote you 15. I don't think it'll be 10. So I think 20 is for this far as this conversation goes. 20 is a is a rate to expect for property management. And you start looking at this and you're like, well, if I pay somebody 20% property management, and that doesn't like include my housekeeper, I still have to pay my housekeeper and all of my property expenses. That's right off the top. So, you know, I'm wondering. Are you seeing your sellers try to like bridge this gap from, I'm sorry, your buyers, are your buyers like bridging this gap with the seller expectation being kind of like this 2021 type pricing where you had 3% debt, all the rents were just like double digit growth. Everything looked so good. Um, 
are you seeing buyers try to bridge those pricing gaps by changing their model and like running it as an Airbnb or a corporate rental? I think I think they were. It's interesting you say this because I've heard this feedback from several of uh, my contacts that do short-term rentals or corporate rentals. So it's interesting because probably about four years ago, um, you know, around around COVID or before COVID, they're they're just that wasn't nearly as popular um, corporate rentals and, and short-term rentals. Um, I think people realized early on that there was a nice spread there to make a nice where, you know, they would look at a deal and say, Hey, I can make this much as a long-term rental, but look at what I can make as a, a short-term, especially if it's well-located in, in the neighborhoods we were just discussing. But I think what happened over the last few years is those markets started to get saturated because every person realized there was a little bit more money to make if they could do something creative with a short-term rental or a furnished rental. And so a lot of those started coming up. I remember seeing them if I was looking at brand comps and be clicking around and I'd see a lot of uh, descriptions that said, you know, offered as a short term rental, um, Internet include, you know, all this stuff included. And I could tell anecdotally that a lot of people were starting to to do that. Um, but what I've heard and what I've I've seen is that people who picked good locations to do that, whether it be at the beach or Riverside or San Marco, I think still can find success uh, doing those strategies. But what I think that people, um, the people that I think that are um, are not going to do well or are having disposing of, of assets they bought now were people who maybe bought in areas that were just kind of mediocre and really didn't make sense for a short term, you know, an area that wouldn't have a, it wouldn't have a hotel. And so because it didn't have a hotel, there was, was probably the reason you know, there wasn't demand there to begin with for um, for short term housing like that. And so I think that there were probably a lot of purchases by people of buying in areas that were just kind of not really meant for that. And now they're either having to convert it back to a long term rental or they're just selling the property, putting it back on the market, hoping to sell it to like an you know an owner occupant or something like that. So do think that was very popular for a period of time, but um, I just think that it's a real um, kind of uh, situational thing right now. Where if you you know if you bought you know at the beach east of Third Street or something like that, you're you're still doing fine with short term rentals. Um, uh, but if you bought in like a you know I don't know somewhere like on the west side and just a residential neighborhood or something like that, there's really nothing to draw you there. I think that that's probably not doing nearly as well. So I have seen that you know change, um, but I do think that you know if when the property makes sense, when it's in an area that makes sense, uh, I do think it's a great strategy if that's the kind of you know business that you want to go and it's just obviously much different because it's much more operationally intensive than you know long-term rental and there's financing things and insurance things that go into that as well. But um but certainly I think if if the if the area makes sense then um then I think it's a great strategy still. Yeah one strategy that I personally like with using Airbnb as an investor is I'll use it in conjunction with a house hack. And for those that don't know the, you know, that term, that's where you you actually rent out a part of your homestead property, your primary residence. And you can actually do it in a single family, but most people would house hack like in a small multifamily, two, three, four unit property. So I tend to 
buy or live in houses that have a rental component, but you do have to be careful. Disclaimer, most people are just listening, not watching. I was waving my hands. You want to watch out and make sure you don't violate um, any homestead regulations, but you can do that by essentially like the duration and amount of rental. So one thing I like to do is have a small space because bear in mind, these are short term. You can get away with, by example, the one in the one in uh, my home, 200 feet. It's actually like 190 square feet. So very small. Um, it'd be small even if it was a hotel room and it has a kitchenette and it has the, it has a full bathroom, Murphy bed, exposed brick walls. You can walk everywhere. You can walk to five points. It does pretty well for 180 something, 190 square feet. It may do 60, 65% occupancy and we never go under a hundred dollars a night. So you can kind of back into the numbers there. You know, it should, it should do over $2,000 a month. I don't even notice it in the utility bill. It has separate entrance. And so consider if I was going to do, do something with that space in a traditional or long-term format, I'm not even sure if I could rent it out. It's so small. And if I did, even in Riverside, which is a good rental market, not furnished, I mean, I'm going to take a stab at it, maybe $700, maybe. I mean, it's just too small. I don't have laundry in there. I don't have a full kitchen in there. Um, certainly under 1000 And here I am, you know, Florida, Georgia was not long before this recording. We had um, $720 for two nights for Florida, Georgia. Now that's Florida, Georgia. It's an outlier, but you can take advantage of some of these very high value moments as a short-term operator um, and still maybe keep your property vacant or have family in there, be careful with your homestead and things like that. But it is a way to, in my opinion, it's a great tool to get high revenue from small spaces versus when you have a traditional rental um, unfurnished, a lot of people are going to be looking at like the price per square foot per month for this residential rental. Not everybody thinks that way, but you know, appraisers and brokers and lenders do. And you really can't get away with such a small space on these longer term, but you put together a cool, eclectic, cute spot in a highly pedestrian area, you can make pretty good money. And so the way that I've used that is just to buy better real estate that I'm going to personally occupy and I'm going to offset holding costs. And whether it's at the beach or Riverside or some of these high barrier to entry markets, you can get a better home for yourself rent out a small portion of it and do pretty well. It's it's one of the ways I like to use short-term rentals. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great strategy. I think anybody, um, you know, starting off or uh, who is, is comfortable doing something like that. And the fun, the funny thing about that too, is that what you're describing a lot of times the pe the, the properties with these sort of, um, uh, like in-laws, uh, you know, or, or garage, you know, garage apartment, these separate dwellings are actually some of the nicest neighborhoods in the city, um, that have those at the beach that's common, uh, in Riverside that's common. So it's like, it's kind of funny because not only is it a good strategy, it could help you get into an area that is, is honestly like some of the best real estate in the city that, that happens to have those unique opportunities. So I think it's interesting. And Stephen, you know, in this world of small multifamily, and and we can go up in the unit count. You know, um, I had an eight, a twenty-eight, had a little three unit, and then we started to do some bigger projects, eighty-three units. And what I found is it's a very different game. Do a lot of your clients kind of stop at a certain point? Are like, oh, you know, find me an eight unit, find me a twelve, a sixteen, a twenty-four. Where, where, in your opinion, because this small to mid-sized multifamily, I'm going to state a few things that 
are obvious to me, but maybe not obvious to the audience. Your lending oftentimes changes. Um, your underwriting and expense ratios may change for smaller multifamily. Your CapEx per unit can change because you don't necessarily have the economies of scale. You do have people that may try to self-manage because it's a lower unit count. So you have these variables. Um, kind of where do where do a lot of your clients fall that are? I know we mentioned the people buying quads in Riverside, but let's upgrade a little bit. You know, how the buyer profile shifts a little bit as you move up this multifamily ladder, but stay, you know, well under a hundred. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, you know, I think that the smaller buyer or I should small, smaller buyers, people buying stuff in, you know, smaller deals in Riverside and in the historic districts, things like that. Those are typically, um, sometimes local investors with their own money. Sometimes they're, they're out of state investors with their own money. You're typically not finding people, um, raising money for, for those smaller deals. And, um, you're right. You know, they're managing, um, you know, they're, they're, they're managing with third party or, or if they're local, they're, they're managing themselves. So I think that those properties are interesting because, you know, when I'm working on a deal that is smaller like that, the, honestly, it, people hate to hear this, but the underwriting when you're valuing it is almost irrelevant because everyone is going to operate. The only thing that's going to stay the same are the real estate taxes. I mean, I shouldn't say that say the same. The only thing that is going to be the same regardless of how somebody's operating it is that the real estate taxes are going to reassess. The insurance is going to be new for a new buyer. The utilities are likely going to stay the same, but all the repairs and maintenance, it's going to vary so much depending on who and how they're operating that property. Um, the management fee is going to be what their particular management company is going to use. So all of that stuff changes so much for a, you know, a buyer on the the small end, just depending on who they are, you know, is it, is it a guy that just has a handyman and he he likes to be hands-on and he likes to be in there doing that kind of stuff. Is it, or is it a guy that, you know, lives in New York and he's going to hire a third party and they're just going to, he's going to be very passive and just, you know, that's, that's the way he's going to manage it. Um, and then you go up in size um, a little bit and then those deals, you know, those 40, 60, 80 unit deals, that's kind of an interesting space because that's where you get people that are um, starting to raise money um, for deals, they're typically going to usually be ran by third party, uh, management. Um, usually at that size, I feel like you don't have, um, a lot of groups that are vertically integrated and kind of managing that on their own. It, it does tend to be, um, you know, third party mostly. Um, but it's just a very different nature of owner investor. And I, I will say that some people, after they do their, you know, first few smaller deals, they, they, their whole goal was to, they use that as a stepping stone into getting into larger deals. Um, and that's been a goal of theirs all along. Uh, and they want to go out and they want to raise money and they want to build a business that way. And then some, you know, there's the keep the small, keep it small and own it all strategy um, that we, we have friends that, that have done that, um, done that ourselves and, um, you know, done very well with that. Um, I don't think there is a right or wrong solution. I've seen people that have done very well in both arenas, whether they're, you know, gonna, they're trying to grow and, and grow their unit count and, and, the, you know, the deals they want to do, or, um, they just want to find, um, you know, a couple of smaller, uh, deals a year with a really nice spread and do it themselves. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of different things when it comes to, you know, the, 
uh, the capital raising component, the operations component, financing. Um, and, and I really don't think there's a right or wrong, but there's definitely pros and cons to both. Um, you know, it definitely seems to be in the smaller deals, uh, a more from a, I guess there's more opportunity sometimes in, in you know, uh, finding a, a price discrepancy and things like that. Um, and uh, obviously it's easy to, you know, to generally raise the capital or, or have your own capital for deals that size. Um, the larger deals obviously provide scale, which is nice. Um, that's, you know, scale, I feel like is one of those things you really don't, you know, internalize it until you feel it. And uh, it's, it's just challenging to do some of these deals. And um, you realize like why people you know, preach scale over and over and over again, because um, you end up uh, doing a lot of things on these deals that are really challenging and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the same amount of work, whether you're doing a 40 unit deal or a, a 60 unit deal. Um, but I, I don't know if that answered your question. I, hope, I don't know if I touched on a couple of things or not that. No, that you, you did. You touched to. on a Yeah. You touched on a few things and, and I have a couple of thoughts on it as well. I, I've, I did personally really well with smaller, mid to small multifamily, um, but I haven't done one of those in a little while. And you are right. I mean, like you you can go far by owning it all. I will say, as I sit here right now, most people probably fall into two buckets. Like, are you trying to be an active investor in commercial or multifamily? I mean, do you want to be underwriting deals? Do you want to be possibly asset managing and or property managing if you, do you want to go all the way to the level of like personally renovating units? That's a very different person, different investor, different avatar versus, you know, person B or this other bucket, a higher net worth individual. Um, maybe they're IT or medicine or law or whatever it is, but they have something they can do every day that has like a, a high hourly correlation to their time. In my opinion, unless they just desire to jump over and be this active investor, they're probably better suited for the large scale multifamily that does have scale, uh, has economies of scale and operation, and that is open generally to limited partner investors, and they're probably accredited. So then they can go ahead and enter these deals and be insulated from downside beyond just the loss of the capital invested. So those are very different people. I think if you're trying to really move the needle rapidly, that active investor bucket um, which is really where I have been most of my adult life has been really good to me, but it is, it is a lot of work. You know, it's a lot more than people think this, this more like LP passive, busy professional bucket, you know, a larger deal with a good operator. Um, and it probably doesn't have this like hockey stick upside. It's probably, it's probably a little bit more predictable. That's a good place to potentially park your money. I'm going to pivot a little bit on you, Steven. Um, I know everyone loves predictive questions, but you know we're at this kind of stalemate. At least the transactions would indicate we're at a little bit of a stalemate in the transactional economy. What's nice, in my opinion, is if you're an owner, at least in Jacksonville, you're doing your pricing's your pricing's okay. I mean, rents rents are stable, like you said. In certain submarkets, you might see a, a very small slide in multifamily rents, but they're more or less stable everything's pretty much full. So the obvious challenge that everybody knows listening right now, interest rates, you know, you have a doubling of rates and it's just, how can I, how can I hit a one, two, five debt coverage? Uh, I can't push the rents anymore. People are a little like, you know, blind about the true CapEx. And so you start to put all these things together. You're like, I, I can't transact right now, but let's take kind of a dual, dual track. Look, 
How do you see like the next hundred days kind of take us through Christmas into the first quarter? Maybe it's just more of the same. I'm just curious if you see anything and then kind of where do you see maybe a year from now, maybe a year to 18 months. So kind of like the most immediate 90 to hundred days and then kind of a little bit longer view at like say 18 months. Yeah. Well, say for the next 90 days, I mean, my experience has been over the past few years since I got into brokerage, um, the holidays slow down. I mean, we're, we're right before, you know, about 10 days before Thanksgiving now, give or take, um, while we're recording this. And, um, historically, this is when it's, it's interesting. There's a bifurcation of the market right now where you have, um, I would say the majority of the people, um, saying, Hey, if I wasn't, um, you know, going to, if I, if I don't have anything teed up now, if I don't have anything interesting in front of me, if I don't have any compelling reason to do something, it's pencils down and I'm going to travel, spend time with my family, start preparing for next year. A lot of people in our business use December as sort of that like game planning strategy time. And so I think that there's a lot of people out there that if they were already inactive, they're definitely not doing anything now. They're just done. And I think there's a very small subset of people around this time that usually actually this is when they decide, hey, either whether it's for tax reasons or something interesting, you know, I'm really going to, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deciding that now is the time when I'm going to make a move. I'm either going to I'm going to fire sale that property or I've got a large capital gain. If I something comes out that even looks halfway interesting, I'm going to jump on it because I want to pick up that depreciation. I'm going to do a cost segregation study and I'm going to wipe out those um, those gains from early, earlier in the year. So I think that you'll have some people doing that, but um, it's, you know, it's still challenging to put a deal together right now with, with rates being where they are. Um, so I think that uh, it's, You'll you'll still over the next thirty days still see very low transaction volume, um, and I think, but I think you'll see a few things that'll happen like they always do end of year, where it's just like man, they you know something goes on the market, gets snapped up, and there's some there's some sort of tax reason or or something that was you know interesting about um, a deal just kind of coming together really quickly. So that's my my thoughts for the near term. I, I think that just due to the holidays and due to the capital markets being where they are, probably still pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty slow. Um, I think a year out from now, though, um, I think we're finally, you know, people have used analogy of kind of like that, that like cruise ship slowly moving into like a, you know, a, like a wall um, where you could see those maturities coming. You, you knew that, that, that people were going to have to make a, a decision. I think that we're finally getting to that, that point where, um, you know, you can see, I can run, I have software where I can run maturities and I can see, can see what somebody paid for it, can see what type of loan they have. And I can see, Hey, this person's got to make a tough decision. Like it's coming to a head. Um, so I think that we're going to start seeing some more of those in 2024 um, where this, this distress that people knew was coming for a long time is, is going to start to be a catalyst for some decision-making. Um, I think there's a lot of owners out there that are still in good shape. They have fixed six fixed rate long-term debt and they're in, you know, they're not going to have to do anything and they're just, they're just kind of waiting and, you know, not really doing much, but I do think that we're finally coming to a period where um, there's going to have to be some tough decisions being made. I'm sure you've already seen the headlines that, 
across the Southwest and Southeast. There've already been some groups in trouble doing loan workouts and um, different things, but I think that we're going to see more of that. And so, um, you know, definitely, I think that's going to be, um, you know, something that we see in the market, but um, I think you'll see transaction activity starting to, to pick up um, in the second half of next year. I think just because um, I think that I personally feel, I mean, I can't, you know, we'll probably look back at this maybe and laugh. I know I have done on previous podcasts where I made predictions, but I at least think we're to a point of of sort of um, plateauing in terms of where where rates are going. Um, I, I think that you know they're they're at least going to just stay flat and stabilize. Um, I, I I don't really see them going too much higher, but I also unfortunately don't see them going um, really low in the in the near term. But I think that the second half of next year. Um, you know, we could see a little bit of, of, of relief. Um, and I think that people, once they know that the increases are behind us and everything that we start seeing some, some deal making, the only thing I will say is that, um, you know, if we do some, see some economic distress in the 2024, that'll obviously be interesting because, um, you know, we might see rates finally stabilize, but, um, you know, if unemployment starts ticking up and the, you know, um, people start pulling back on spending and things like that. That'll be, that'll be interesting. So, um, anyway, but yeah, I think, that, so that's my, my short answer, nothing in the near term, but I think that, that the second half of next year, I think we'll start seeing some, um, you'll start seeing some transactions from people that have to, uh, make decisions. Yeah. And I, I tend to echo your sentiment. I do think that it's the bigger to be determined is like, go forward a year or a year and a half let's say rates are, are slightly lower, just enough to get people slightly excited. Let's say maybe, maybe they come down a point, just brain, you know, just spitballing with you. Is that enough, you know, to get people excited again, to have sellers maybe ratcheted some expectations down. And then what's, what's interesting is to your point, where's employment? Cause I was appraising through the, the downturn. Like I was appraising in those really tough years. Um, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, all the bad news years. And we were back then bleeding like 500,000 jobs a month. We're nowhere. That's not even close to our re reality now. You know, Now it's more just this like frozen economy, you know, like the seller strike. Some people talk about where like you have sellers sitting on great debt. Not all of them. Some of them are ballooning. But those that are sitting on great debt, not motivated to do anything. Um, so then you wonder, is it like a global conflict? Is it a war? Is it rates? Is it employment? And then what we don't know, because it it's just starting to happen, how are lenders going to treat these maturing loans? Or maybe they're not maturing. Maybe they're just coming off of, maybe they're like resetting or a rate cap issue or like an imminent default, but the property's still doing fine. So what I'm curious to see is, do they want to modify, work out and restructure? Um, you know, the last time we saw much of this, banks took a lot of property back. That didn't go very well. These properties were sold at, you know, pennies on the dollar a lot of times. And so I'm kind of curious to see if there's a posture of working out more loans. You know, if COVID, now COVID's kind of a weird, well, more than a weird anomaly. But if you look at how lenders treated COVID, it was seen as it was seen as temporary. Uh, there's forgiveness, forbearance, stimulus. A lot of this is federal. But my, my point is, I'm curious, like on the banking side, you know, are they Will will there be relief in the future? Are they going to work out these loans? Or are you just going to have maturities and defaults and dead fish floating up and more bankruptcies? 
It's probably somewhere in between. I think that my, my personal opinion. I think that those, and we are recording this, this is the Jacksonville commercial real estate show. I'm not, I can't speak for all corners of the world, but in Northeast Florida, I don't think we're going to have a lot of dead fish floating up. I think those that aren't taking any action, they're just not going to be transacting for a couple of years. And we'll see stuff in like the business journal and the daily record about these deals that somebody got. And we're like, oh my God, how do you do that? Those are the ones we've been waiting for. I just don't think it's going to be to the scope and scale that a lot of people believe. So if you can find a way to transact, if you could take advantage of like loan assumptions or seller financing or some creativity right now and still have some transactions under your belt, I personally think be cautious, be shrewd, but I do think that's a better approach. Um, I'm going to pivot on you, Stephen. Um, we have a local deal breakdown. I only ask this of investor guests. And you qualify because you are a multifamily broker, but you also invest. And you have a local deal we can break down. So the categories are what and where was it? How'd you find it? How'd you fund it? What was the opportunity? How'd you exit? And lesson takeaway. So don't worry, I'll do it all again. But step one, what was it and where was it? It was an eight-unit uh, property in Avondale in the Riverside uh, area. Wonderful. Uh, eight-unit in Avondale. How'd you find it? Um, a, a broker had it, uh, a newer broker had it with a, you know, a uh, probably a not-so-long buyer list had it off market and um, shared it with me um, because he was he was new to the business. So off, was, uh, Okay, off market, maybe a younger broker. Um, how did you fund it? Uh, a local uh, credit union. Local credit union. I will say, not to derail you, Vistar, I'll give them a little shout right now. They funded my eight unit and my 28 unit back in. It, um, it was, yeah, it was Vistar. Yeah, yeah. Vistar on this one. Yep. I, don't, I don't mind plugging the locals that are doing doing a good job for us. So good. Local credit union, Vistar. Um, did you have to raise equity or did the partners just uh, shoulder? No, it was, it was, uh, it was um, 50 50 with, uh, with my old partner. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, what was the problem and or opportunity and how did you fix it? This was a local uh, owner that was um, uh, very affluent. And this was sort of a, it was one of those great properties where they were sort of friends with the tenants. And so the the, the rents were very um, low compared to market. However, um, they treated the building extremely well um, in terms of, of of just keeping up with the maintenance and everything. So it was one of those great opportunities where um, from a, a physical standpoint, it was an excellent condition, but from a op operationally in terms of where the property could have been performing, um, there's a lot of low hanging fruit to grab and, and just, uh, you know, bringing the rents up. All right. So it sounds like, you know, the physical plant, as we said in appraisal, the property itself was in, was in good condition. What did you have to do to reposition? Was it a managerial value add? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. We didn't really do anything substantial um, with the renovations. Uh, the units were sort of in a classic, uh, you know, kind of uh, historic property condition uh, that I think some of the tenants actually liked. Um, I think there was, and, and we also saw that too. I think the play was, hey, we'll go in, bring the rents up. Um, however, we can sell this as a value add to that next buyer who does have ambitious plans maybe to go in and turn this. It was a beautiful building. Um, the exterior really stood out. Um, the interiors had really nice 
high ceilings, hardwood floors, but I think that somebody could have went in and done something else with the the kitchens and the in the bathrooms. And so uh, that was sort of the play. Hey, we'll go and bring up the rents and we'll kind of position this later to sell as a value add deal to somebody who does want to really um, do that. I'm not a really a, a construction guy that's or design guy. That's not my um, my you know, my area of expertise, I would bring on a partner if, who was good with that stuff. But anyway, we, um, we just left the the physical condition of the property, how it was. And how did you exit? Was it an exit or a hold? Um, so we did exit the property. So, um, we, um, a buyer who was looking for a 1031 exchange specifically in Avondale, I thought that would be the perfect um, deal for them. Um, ended up not working out with that buyer, but the lender, and this is one of those weird things about real estate, the lender who was working on it was actually an agent himself. He was a mortgage broker and an agent. And I said, Hey, listen, um, unfortunately the deal, you know, the deal fell through, but if you've got anybody you think would be a good fit, um, you know, let me know. And he did. And, um, they were, you know, great buyer and they ended up, um, you know, doing the deal, um, relatively the, a similar pricing to, um, to what the original deal that we had teed up was. So it's kind of one of those things that just happened very, um, organically. And, um, we felt like we got a, a pretty good, um, a pretty good number for, for where the rents, you know, the rents were. So we decided ultimately to sell. And what was your lesson or takeaway on that deal? Um, number one is what I said in the beginning of the podcast, uh, protect the downside, let the upside take care of itself, I think is um, a great mindset to go into a real estate deal. Um, I think if you know what the downsides are, um, but you can put, put yourself in a position to get lucky at some point during your whole period, whether that's um, taking of a advantage of a advantageous capital markets by refinancing or a, a 1031 buyer coming on or something like that. But, but you know that you can kind of um, you know, hold for a period of time that will allow that that sort of luck to happen. I think that's that's probably the number one lesson. But also, too, um, I think one thing that I'll say is don't underestimate when you're buying these historic properties. Um, it's not like buying a brand new construction property. You know, you you should um, estimate that you're going to likely have higher capex costs and and repairs and maintenance than you would for a for a newer property. Um, they're just they're older, you know, you're buying a hundred year old property. You have to know that inevitably you're going to have plumbing issues here and there, unless the plumbing's all been, you know, completely redone, you're going to have maybe some structural issues. It's not a reason not to buy the property, um, but it's just something that you need to not fool yourself that those things are inevitably going to, you know, present themselves and you need to be prepared for them. I'm sitting in a 105 year old dwelling in Riverside, so I, I could not agree more. <laughs> all right. We're going to dive into our closing questions, and they are very Jacksonville. You ready? So, All right. What is your favorite local restaurant? My favorite local restaurant is uh, a newer establishment. I think it's been open for about a year, Bar Molino in, in uh, San Marco. It's a tapas spot. And um, I had really, I'd be, I'll be honest, had low expectations going in because I just, I didn't know if somebody was going to do that well and they just knocked it out of the park it's it's incredible i love it um uh if i didn't live at the beach I, i'd probably go there much more often but a great little spot in san marco really well done all right bar molino san marco uh next question a local business that people should know more about well i am a big foodie guy so i will throw out another um another spot that um i really enjoy mesa and it's it's a great little um uh spot over in the 
Uh, I guess it's 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 close to Riverside. I guess you would call that area Fairfax, I, I believe. Yeah. But um, it's it's kind of hidden. Um, it's funny because it's a spot where it's one of those first locations where I think several restaurant concepts failed there over the past twenty years or so. And um, it's kind of like an Indian fusion spot. But the I mean the the food is incredible. Um, it's 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 definitely uh tucked away you wouldn't know about it unless you i think unless you heard about it from a local but i if you're into indian food at all it's their kind of spin on it and it's it's really incredible i could not agree more i have not been to bar molino but i just went to mesa um within a week of this recording uh for my wife's birthday tasting menu like five or six courses unbelievable one of the few meals that looking back months later i still think about so I'm going to go ahead and give them a, a full big yield coach endorsement there. Um, and it's adjacent to the uh, like the fire department. So you get a little action next door. And we sat outside. Great environment. All right. Local hidden gym that the audience should know about in Jacksonville. So I think a uh, a good in this one, I'll bring it back. The other ones I did are, are, are in, you know, Riverside and San Marcos. So I'll take it out to the, the beach where I am um, is Colhane's, a great uh, Irish pub, great food, um, great, great vibe. They've got, you know, uh, karaoke and trivia and all kinds of stuff. But it feels, you know, you go into it and it's in it's in kind of like a a little strip shopping center and so it, but when you go inside i mean it's really you know you're kind of transported it feels like you're in more of an authentic um irish pub and um just really some some great food and great times there so that's my my hidden gym all right call Haynes in atlantic beach i like it all right well we're always looking for the next interesting guest you've been great steven who's someone that you think is making moves in jacksonville that the audience would benefit from getting to know so I just had lunch with um, a, a guy I've been meaning to um, connect with for for at least a year now. Um, Andrew from Joseph Joseph Ellen Properties um, had is an interesting story. He moved here from St. Louis, I think, three or four years ago. Um, he started a a short term rental. Um, third-party management company, owns a few deals himself and also um, is potentially exploring getting into the long-term management space, but really enjoyed lunch with him, had a lot of insight into the short-term market, um, really is seems like a, a operator who's got a handle on things and is, um, you know, is growing rapidly and kind of like looked to as a, a really uh, uh, a sort of a guy in that space that that knows the numbers, knows the market, and uh, I would say anybody that is in Jacksonville looking either operating in the short term rental space or looking to get into it, he's he's a great resource. Awesome. All right, Andrew at Joseph Allen Properties, Sammy, our producer, might be reaching out to you soon. All right, Stephen, this has been awesome. Where can people find you and learn more about you? Um, I think uh, pretty easy to find. Just Google my name. You can find me on LinkedIn, um, Franklin Street website. You can see any of uh, the deals I have out, but um, shouldn't be too difficult to find. Um, so shoot me a message on LinkedIn or uh, or find my my contact information on Franklin Street website. Um, if you're interested in multifamily deals in Northeast Florida, um, if buying, selling, or just curious about the market, always happy to hop on a call and uh, and talk through it. And um, and if you're just anywhere else in the region and and uh, ever stopping through Jacksonville and want to talk multifamily, I'd love that too. 
Awesome. All right. Stephen McAdoo, Franklin Street, Director of Multifamily. It has been a pleasure. All right, everybody. If you enjoyed this, please do us a favor and rate and review the podcast. Share it with a friend. Makes a huge difference. Helps us continue to bring you great guests like Stephen and better and better content. As I mentioned earlier, to stay up to date and never miss an investment opportunity, go to investwiththecoach.com, answer a couple questions, and join the team. If you're into socials, we are Yield Coach on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. We're not on Twitter, uh, but we're on the rest. And we frequently post deal opportunities and inside looks. That is a wrap on this Jacksonville commercial real estate show. I'm your host, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out.